The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, let's go ahead and start. We could. Hope you all got, uh, I've got two handouts for you tonight. Um, still uh, working on chapter 44, so I just condensed it, um, the things we're going to study tonight, and then uh, we'll look at uh, Grudem's chapter 45. So tonight we're going to finish our look at the church, its nature, marks, and purposes, and then we'll go on to the purity and unity of the church. So did you all get a handout, or two handouts? They're right at the back there. Okay. All right, uh, when we finished last week, we were talking about the marks of a, of a church, distinguishing characteristics. You know, one of the most important uh, questions that people ask uh, on the individual level is, how can I know uh, that I'm saved? What are the marks of regeneration, right? Uh, the last that, it's a very serious question, is it? How do we know that we're born again? Or it might be about another person, a family member, maybe a child, you know, son or daughter. People want to know what are the marks of regeneration? How can I know if that person is really saved? And so that's a very important uh, question. The question being asked here is, how can I know whether this church, the church that I have in mind, is, is a real church or not? How can I know whether, whether the Spirit of God is here, whether it's a true church? Especially given, and this is really going to be our focus the whole evening, especially given the fact that there are no perfect churches. Every church is made up of sinners. Every pastor is a sinner. Every pastor's theology is imperfect at some point. Every, every uh, uh, pastor's um, life is imperfect at some point. And so, you know, you're not going to have perfect churches. And as some uh, jokester once said, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it, you'll ruin it. I mean, that's, that's good advice, isn't it? I mean, it was fine before you got here, etc. Well, th- that's just a, a humble statement of, of universal sin. All of us have sin, and you're not going to find any any perfect churches around. The question is, how much imperfection is tolerable or acceptable before you start saying this is not even a real church? And that, that's really kind of what's in front of us. What are the marks of a church that is genuine? Now, there were false synagogues. Uh, synagogue was the Jewish uh, congregation, the assembly of believers before the time of Christ. And uh, once Christ came, that became a real fork in the road, of course. Those that believed in Christ accepted the gospel, those that didn't. Uh, in Revelation 2.9, right there in the middle of the front page I've given there, it says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Well, that's a provocative phrase, isn't it? Synagogue of Satan. Those who say they are Jews and are not, etc. Um, well, it was Jesus that made the statement, and he certainly has the right to make those kind of assessments. In other words, he's saying that this is not a true assembly of Jews. Well, it does raise the question at that point, are there churches of Satan? You know, there's synagogues of Satan. Is there something that really uh, could be a church uh, of Satan? You know, it's interesting. Take a minute and, and look at your Bibles at Revelation. Uh, you remember the, the whole um, uh, letters to the seven churches, and um, John Stott uh, did some great commentary work on those uh, and it, entitled the seven churches. He, he entitled it, What Christ Thinks of the Church. And it's a very striking image, isn't it, of Jesus um, in his resurrection glory, in John's vision, moving through the seven golden lampstands. And the seven lampstands represent these seven churches. The lampstands represent the churches. They are the churches. And here's the picture of Jesus moving through them, somewhat tending them, uh, ministering to them, etc. 
He's the high priest and he's there taking care of these churches. That's, that's an awesome thought, isn't it? I think about it often as the pastor of a local church. And some people, you know, as each of the seven uh, churches are addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? To the angel of the church at Thyatira, right? You know, people debate on what angel means. The word angel is angelos, which means messenger. It could just be the pastor. But he's giving a message to the pastor. Others uh, think it may refer to supernatural, you know, angels that are somewhat guardian angels of these churches. But uh, it, it's interesting. If you look at, um, at the um, letter to the church at Sardis, chapter 3, Revelation 3, um, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, how would you characterize that church? What's the issue in the church in Sardis there? What kind of church are they? They're a dead church. Okay. Well, that's not good, obviously. Uh, so here's Jesus assessing this church at Sardis as a dead church. Have you ever worshipped at a dead church? You know, I've been there before. I've been to churches before. And, you, you know, they've got a building. They've got a name. They're in the yellow pages. You know, they've had ministry for a long time, but they're dead. What does that mean when you're talking about a church that's dead? Say again. Spiritually dead. Jack, what does that mean? Christ isn't there. Okay. What other things? You know, go ahead, David. I went to a church and the pastor on one Sunday morning said, whose church is this? And most of the people in the church said, our church. <laughs> That's about right, you know. They were looking at who they were in the building and what they'd accomplished and where their property was and all that. And they left God right out of it. That's right. That's right. You know, it's something to keep in mind. There's only one that ever shed his blood for the church. You know, look in Acts chapter 20 when it talks about uh, be shepherds of the church of God. He's talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. There's not a pastor on earth in history that can make that statement. Uh, it is Jesus and Jesus alone who shed his blood for the church. It's his church. And it's a good thing for pastors constantly remember that. I think about this church, which was founded in 1845. There's only one who's been here through the whole history of the church, and that's Jesus. He's the only one. Uh, if there's a member in a nursing home somewhere, I'd really like to meet him or her. I'd actually be a little scary at this point. You know, you're talking about since 1845. That'd be quite eerie. Uh, but at any rate, here's that church at Sardis, and it's a, it's a dead church. So the issue here is we, we need to try to find out the marks of a true church or the distinguishing marks of a true church as opposed to a false church. Last time we uh, looked at some of the Reformation statements, the Augsburg Confe Confession, which is a Lutheran statement of faith in 1530. Um, this, the confession says, the church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments rightly administered. By the way, I find that interesting. It's a Lutheran statement. But they are, in the statement, it seems, uh, ascribing regenerate church membership. You see, the church is a congregation of saints. It doesn't say of saints and their children. It says of saints. So I wonder if he's getting baptistic there. Of course, they still did the infant baptism and all that kind of thing. But that's really what the Baptists were saying. You know, absolutely, the church is a congregation of saints, of genuine believers in Christ, etc. But at any rate, it's a congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught, sacraments rightly administered. So that's what you're looking for. It's a congregation of believers in Christ. They've come together and you've got the gospel being rightly taught or preached, etc. And you've got the sacraments. What are the sacraments? What are we talking about there? Communion. Communion. 
and baptism. Luther reduced it from seven, which the Roman Catholic Church has, down to two, and basically all Protestant churches follow the, the same too. Not that we denigrate marriage, not that we denigrate ordination or last rites, praying with the sick or any of these things, but we just don't call them ordinances or sacraments. We, uh, uh, we just have those too. John Calvin said this, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there is, it is not to be doubted, uh, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. So again, he, he expands this a, a bit, but I don't think that Luther would have quibbled you know, Luther and those that wrote the Augsburg Confession, when they're saying wherever the gospel is preached, I think they would have extended that to the, the whole 66 books of the Bible. You know, Calvin was a little more accurate when he said wherever the word of God is taught, uh, etc. And you've got the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution. Uh, that's where the church of God exists, all right? Now, uh, we talked about this last time, the Roman Catholic Church. The view is basically their church is the true church. It's the one that, that Christ established the one that St. Peter is the rock of. He was the first pope. There's been a, a, a direct descendancy from Peter down through all of the bishops. And uh, uh, that is the true church. And so there's a tremendous unity of purpose throughout there. And basically all of the groups, all of the groups, by that we mean the Orthodox Church. We'll talk about that later uh, today. The Eastern Orthodox Church that broke off in the 11th century. And the Protestants who broke off in the uh, 16th century, they are schismatic groups. The true church is the Roman Catholic Church. At least that's the genuine doctrine or the, or the, the thought uh, of, of the purest. After John Paul or John, Pope John Twenty-Third in Vatican II, the church kind of went liberal and they look on us as kind of estranged brothers and sisters and all that. They're not really talking a lot about excommunication or burning heretics or any of those kind of things. So it's a little bit mushier now. But uh, originally, the, there was the, definitely the strong attitude outside of the church, there is no salvation. And by them, they mean, by that, they mean the Roman Catholic Church, etc. That's the Catholic view. Now, Grudem says we should take Luther and Calvin's approach as the correct one. But there's still some questions that remain. As we've said, since no church has perfect doctrine, how much bad doctrine is tolerable for a church to still be considered a church? So that's a big question, really. Uh, for example, the Mormon church rejects the basic tenets of our faith especially concerning salvation in Jesus Christ, so also the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Mormons consider themselves Christians. They very much want to be seen as a Christian denomination. Uh, but we would reject that because they deny uh, the biblical understanding of who Christ is, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And they have a theology that seems more like science fiction than it does like uh, true biblical revelation. It's really quite a bizarre thing coming from the mind and imagination of Joseph Smith. Uh, etc. We reject it as a genuine church. Jehovah's Witnesses deny this, one of these central tenets of our faith, which is the deity of Christ. They deny that Christ is God in the flesh. How in the world they do that reading the, the, the whole of, of John's gospel, I have no idea. They think that because there's a lack of a definite article in the Greek in the first verse, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, that proves that Jesus wasn't God. You have to undo the entire gospel of John as though that, uh, there weren't clear evidence of the deity of Christ in the other 65 books of the Bible. My goodness. But all the way through, Jesus says it. How many times are there I am statements in John's gospel? I mean, over and over. There are these I am statements. And then there are many others that, that many times the translations don't, don't pick up. Like uh, John 8.24 is probably the, mo the strongest anti-Jehovah's Witness verse you'll ever find. I told you that you would die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. It's a very strong verse. And what is Jesus saying when he says, that's what the Greek says, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What is he saying there? 
if you do not believe that I am God, what does it mean you will die in your sins? You'll be condemned to hell. And so basically, it's not a light thing that they deny that Jesus is the great I am. He is the one who appeared to Moses in the flames of the burning bush, etc. That's a big thing. So long story short, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, we deny the status of true Christian church. Uh, other, as you're looking at others, uh, Grudem had this statement, when the preaching of a church conceals the gospel message of salvation by faith alone from its members, so that the gospel message is not clearly proclaimed and has not been proclaimed for some time, the group meeting there is not a church. That's what he's saying. So it's really hard as a theologian to try to come up with words that you can write a paragraph or a sentence so that you can know if this is the criteria that it's hard to do that. A lot of times a true believer just senses it in his or her spirit. You just listen to the preaching. You talk to the people. You look around and you say, the Lord's not here. You just know. And I think that that spirit of discernment is part of being a Christian, etc. But it's hard to put it down in writing, etc. All right, the importance of the sacraments. Let's talk about that for a moment. We might ask why the sacraments by Luther and Calvin uh, were placed so much, why the, the statements by Luther and Calvin placed so much emphasis on the sacraments. Perhaps it was in reaction to the Roman Catholic Church. They had a sacramental theology Basically, the idea was it was by the sacraments that you were saved from your sins. It was by baptism in the Catholic Church as an infant that you were born again. No one who is, who, who is um, baptized as an infant will go to hell unless they commit a, a mortal sin and that sin is not confessed to a priest and dealt with by, uh, uh, by penance, etc. So that's... Basically, you, it definitely, if you want to avoid hell, you've got to be baptized. And so Catholic families will baptize their children uh, to, to avoid hell. So basically then, at that point, if you're baptized as a Roman Catholic and you don't commit any mortal sins, then you'll go to heaven eventually. But it's going to be a long journey, of course. You've got to go through tens of thousands of years of purgatory first. Now, this is what they teach. But the basic means of grace, the means of salvation is are or is the sacramental system, these sacraments, as administered rightly by a priest who's been ordained by a Roman Catholic bishop in that succession down from Peter. That's how, how it works. Well, you know, Luther and Calvin, while they had a high respect for the sacraments, did not see that as a way of salvation. But they wanted to be very clear about the sacraments, that Christ ordained them, he established them, and so they were going to be part of the church. I think that's why they have these, uh, these statements. I believe that most Protestant churches go too far the other direction on the sacraments and minimize them, especially the Lord's Supper. You know, Ulrich Zwingli said that the Lord's Supper was basically just a memorial. It was, it was, he was just so, he was going so far from the Roman Catholic view that it saved you to eat the wafer and to drink the wine. He wanted to go so far from that that he said it's just a bare memorial and, you, you know, however infrequently you want to do it, it's up to you. I mean, they could, they could do it as infrequently as a few times a year. Some, some Protestant churches who are really embracing uh, pragmatism in ministry and all that and are huge, they have a hard time distributing the elements to that huge a crowd. So you either can buy them prepackaged, you really can get them a little cup of wine and a little wafer right on top, and it's like, like airport food, you know what I'm saying? It's just ready to go, and they have them out at the seats and all the deacons go on Saturday night and put them all out there. Or they just aren't going to have the Lord's Supper. It's just very, very tough to get it to that many people. At least, I don't think it, I think they could still overcome it if they thought it were that important. But the fact is that basic, they don't think it's, it's that important. And so they'll relegate it quarterly to a Sunday evening service when you have a fraction of the people uh, there. See, for me, I think the Lord's Supper is very important. I look on it as a means of grace. I look on it as very significant. I pray that the Lord will bless it by the sending forth of his spirit. I think Zwingli went too far. I think the Catholics are wrong. I think the truth is in the middle as it frequently is. 
And so the truth is that I think the Lord has, has promised to bless it. And he's promised to bless it with the presence of himself by the power of the Spirit. Not that the bread and the wine are actually transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ. I'm not saying that. But that the Spirit's there. And conviction of sin comes, a sense of, a sense of joy over our future inheritance in Christ. Uh, he's there ministering. And my feeling is, why would you want to miss that? So I would say just, just note the times that we're doing the Lord's Supper and be there. I think that's just so important. Yes. Can we not get that same um, expression of God's love without the Lord's Supper? Certainly. I think you can get it by reading Scripture. You can get it in good Christian fellowship, you know, just by good conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ. But you can get it this way too. And I think this is a way that Christ clearly ordained. And then the Apostle Paul came along in 1 Corinthians 11 and said, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It gives you a sense of the importance of it. But that's a very good question. And I would say, yes, you can. All right. Um, the importance of the ordinances. Um, the ordinances function also as ways to control the membership. And I don't mean that like mind control, like we're a cult. We want to control it. It's not that. It's more that we want uh, to shepherd the flock. We want to be involved in who are the members. And as Baptists, we believe that believer baptism is a very good way um, to enter the church. It's the way we think that the Lord ordained that people enter the church. And therefore, you kind of stand at the gate as a gatekeeper and you, and you try to be sure that no one enters who's not genuinely born again as best as you can. And so we want to make that gate like the narrow gate that Jesus talked about when he said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to life and only a few or, or many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to uh, life and only a few find it. So we want to make that gate narrow, whatever Jesus meant by narrow. And for me, I think it's just they need to repent and believe in Jesus. And then we administer baptism and then they can be members of the church. That's how it works. Same thing with the Lord's Supper because that's the other side of it. When you look at excommunication, the idea is that you're not allowed to take communion. That's the idea. You're not allowed to take, participate in the fellowship. That's what it generally meant in the past. Now, Protestant churches that minimize the Lord's Supper, that's not so weighty. Um, but for us, it should be weighty. Uh, basically, you'd not be welcome at table if you're excommunicated here. You're no longer a member of the church and you're, and you're, and you're out. So at any rate, it's a way to keep looking after the, the membership and, and say, you know, are they a member? Have they been baptized as a believer? Are they walking well with the Lord? Have they not been disciplined or excommunicated? That kind of thing. Okay? So those are reasons I think that uh, ordinances are important. Without these also, you might have still the right preaching of the gospel in no church, like a campus crusade for Christ meeting or a street evangelist surrounded by a crowd on a street corner. You might get right preaching there. You might get the right doctrine, but it's not a church. So you're going to have more features than just the right preaching and teaching of the Word of God. All right, what about true and false churches today? What about the Roman Catholic Church? Well, Grudem says this, the Catholic Church is so widespread and diverse that there may be some local priest somewhere preaching biblical salvation and minimizing the sacramental errors. <laughs> I have a hard time picturing that. I just do. Because they're just so tightly controlled, the priests and the ordination process and all that, I have a hard time imagining. I don't think they'd let him do it for long. You know, I think that would be. But Grudem says it may be. He didn't say he knows any Catholic churches like that. But does that sound like Catholicism to you? To me, I just think that they're not really, it's not genuinely Catholic and that they're not up on their disciplines. They need to kick that guy out because he's not Catholic anymore. You know, I think, I think that's one, one question you might have about it. Is it genuinely Roman Catholic? What about false Protestant churches? Are there false Protestant churches? Well, I think there are. Uh, best example would be liberal churches who deny the basic tenets of the deity of Christ or salvation by faith in Christ and the inspiration and the authority of the Bible. These are significant errors. And so you're talking about liberal churches at that point. 
uh, where you're never really sure what you're going to hear uh, from the pulpit, etc. Now, at this point, this is not in Grudem's book, but I inserted uh, Mark Dever's work, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And these are some identifiers for healthy churches. As I've looked at chapter 45, quite frankly, this probably should be over in chapter 45, which is talking about the difference between uh, less pure and more pure churches. Okay, But since we're going there soon anyway, it's okay. We'll go ahead and do it now, if that's all right. These are some marks of a healthy church. And these are some things that Mark has found uh, that help you to identify a healthy church. Or if you're a pastor, you say, we need to look at it after these things to bring our church more and more to health. Or if you're a search committee, you'd be looking for somebody who could come and would lead the church in this way. Or if you're just a, a godly church member, these are things you can pray for and, and seek to be an influence for <coughs> Excuse me, in the life of a local church. He starts with expositional preaching, goes from there to biblical theology, biblical understanding of the gospel, of the good news, biblical understanding of conversion, biblical understanding of evangelism, a biblical understanding of membership, a biblical understanding of church discipline, promotion of Christian dis- discipleship and growth, and a biblical understanding of church leadership. These are the nine that they have uh, come up with. Why do you think he starts with expositional preaching? First of all, how would you define expositional preaching? What is that? John, what is that? What's expositional preaching? Well, it's kind of like Mike Dan originally expounding on what the scripture says, um, trying to pull out of the passage the actual meaning of scripture rather than trying to use it as sort of a pretext for, for uh, making a statement. Okay, yeah. Jack? Exposing the word. Exposing the word. Okay, all right. Yeah, I think expositional, it's a Latin kind of word, and it means to, to set forth out of. In other words, the thing that you're setting forth comes up out of the Bible. And so, for me, there are a lot of different ways to define it. One would be that that the Bible, that the um, that the scripture you're preaching on controls the, the te- controls the sermon. It controls the meaning of the sermon, the main idea. It controls the subpoints and the flow. Uh, that's what exposition is. Um, there's a difference between uh, preaching and a running commentary. Like I was talking to one of my children, I said, if you had 45 minutes to preach, what would you do? And this person said, well, I guess I would just um, give a running commentary on as many verses as would take up the time. In other words, I'd read a verse and talk about it and read the next verse and talk about it. Well, that's not really preaching either, obviously. I think people would grow weary of that pretty quickly. Um, It's not easy to do, but basically the idea is we want the Bible to control the messages that are coming from the pulpit. We want to understand the passages that are preached on. All right? Why is that first? Why does Mark start there as a mark of a healthy church? Uh, by, by the way, are there other kinds of preaching? Topical. Topical would be a very good example. All right. Topical preaching would be what? What, what approach are you taking with topical? Okay, go ahead. Taking a subject. Go ahead, Katie. Looking at a lot of different verses from different areas of the Bible and applying it to one topic. Right, so you're going to come at a topic and you're going to try to find out what the Bible says generally about that topic. Is that a bad thing to do? Is it bad to preach topically? No, I, you could take things out of context. You could, but it wouldn't necessarily. Suppose all of the supporting verses that you, you, you use actually are taken in their proper con- context and are actually are talking about the topic that you're talking about. Um, the sermon itself isn't a bad sermon. It's actually a good thing. And frankly, we do a lot of topical consideration here in this Acts class. Pretty much it's almost all topical. That's what we do. It's not a bad thing. Why is it not the best thing for 52 weeks a year from the pulpit on Sunday morning? 
What are the problems with it? Huh? Boring? <laughs> okay. Doesn't have to be, but it, it could be, I suppose. Okay, so the word of God, you know, results in regeneration and unsaved hearers. Okay, yeah, John. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you maybe can, but I say generally you wouldn't. Generally, yeah, you don't. Yeah, John. I think two things. One is that I think as uh, Christians, we believe that the whole word is important, not just certain passages that we happen to like. Right. And also, we believe that every word is from God. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we need to hear every word. That's right. That's right. Now, Tom, you were an expositional preacher. Why did you do that rather than the topical approach? He got rid of a lot of self, for one thing. Mm-hmm. He didn't face God in his word, not uh, your thoughts, etc. Yeah, it really is true. Let me tell you, when I prepare sermons, I basically know already that I'm going to preach on the next passage. Now, I don't know how long I'm going to preach. A lot of that is the dynamic of trying to find out how many verses to cover. It depends on the verses. But that's a good, there's a feeling of just standing in front of God and, and he's telling you what to say. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, I'm not taking it, twisting it, rearranging it. I'm just trying to understand what it is. And that's, and that's a very powerful thing. Another thing it does for me as a preacher is it enables me to continue learning. All right? If I say I'm going to preach on prayer, what verses am I going to use to support it? The ones that I think I already do, right? So I'm going to go to those passages that I know teach me about prayer and I'll tell you what I've already learned from those passages. But when I go just straight through a book, what are the odds I'm going to come across stuff I've never been forced to think about before? Pretty good, right? I mean, I mentioned this last week, but me preaching on Paul's closing greetings in Romans 16 is a really good discipline for me. How in the world am I going to not make it, brother, boring, okay? How am I going to go through, you know, 16 verses of greetings and make it compelling? And, uh, I, you know, I'll let you be the judge and, in terms of whether I did that or not when I come in to, to preach it. But, you know, it's a, it's a real discipline. It forces your mind in places it hasn't been before. Any other thoughts on why expositional preaching is so important? Well, yeah. What it does for me, uh, this is feedback, uh, what it does for me is that it helps explain things that uh, I cannot get on my own. Like, for instance... Uh, the Greek understanding of what was meant by a certain word and uh, because of the various translations out there, English is not always uh, the best way to understand things. And also how scripture, and and Christ did this by quoting um, scripture from the Old Testament and so forth, but by having a better understanding of how the whole picture fits together and not just being a, a piece extracted out. Yeah, that is that is so true. That's so true. You know, to me, it's been a it's been a wonderful discipline, and I, I'm I'm grateful for it. One more comment. Yes. Well, I think with expositional preaching, I also need to make it start having to take things out of context. Yeah. I don't see that normal because uh, you know, a lot of times I read things, I find myself reading the same things over and over, and I, you know, I just go over them so fast that I thought, mm-hmm. well, I've heard this a million times before. Mm-hmm. Let's see, other things the Bible is the same thing that we talk about. Well, I'm finding that the Bible is an infinitely deep book. You know, and as you keep, that's right, that's right. There's always, there's always more things. There's a few other things at a human level or a psychological level and pastorally. One is that there are very difficult issues in the Christian life, 
some call them controversial topics or just difficult things to talk about. And I can just tell you that I might be tempted if I were a topical preacher to never preach on them, all right? Why would I want to do that, right? You know, I mean, what am I, a glutton for punishment? I love making people miserable and making people upset and all that. Furthermore, the people for their part can say, why is he preaching on this? Did somebody do something? You know, was it something in the counseling? All right, we all know what we're hearing about on Sunday. Okay, that happened or this happened, right? Yes. Somebody talked to this brother afterwards, all right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I think it's good to be there week after week. Right, but see, here's the thing. I just think there's there's just that consistency to going through a book and, and just saying all of the scriptures God breathed, all of it has something to say to me. And I think that's very powerful. Now, if the next passage, the next passage contains one of those hot-button controversial issues, first of all, the congregation knows the methodology is just it's the next passage. There's nobody singled out. There's nobody being harpooned. It's just there in the Bible. And basically, the pastor, as much as the people, are standing in front of God saying, talk to us about this, you see? And we are all listening to God, and he is saying so there's an authority that comes from the methodology there that's much more difficult when it's a, a topical thing. Also, for myself, I don't know how many topics there are. You know, I've been here coming on eight years. I'd be out by now, okay? We'd be going back around to some of the ones I did early on. And it's, it's likely that I might say about the same things. Yeah, go ahead, Tim. Pretty amazing to me how, you know, as issues have come up, even even the world today, where you stayed on track up through Romans, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. just the way it worked out amazingly that you were in a, in a passage that addressed that, how God used that. It is amazing. You know, a very good example of that recently is that one verse I preached on biblical counseling in Romans fifteen fourteen, right around the time we were recruiting people to go to a biblical counseling conference. I didn't plan that. I mean, how could you? And uh, I didn't manipulate it. I wouldn't have. It's not, it's not, it's not uh, wise to manipulate those kind of things. But I think the Lord just set that up, and I think it worked out well. Anyway, uh, expositional preaching. He also talks about biblical theology. Biblical theology isn't just accurate teaching. It actually is a technical term that's different from systematic theology, and it means the um, narrating or the description or the study of what the Bible has to say as a whole story. What is the story of the Bible? What story is the Bible teaching? And when I say story, I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying what is the unification of the 66 books of the Bible? What's the message of the whole Bible? And I think, you know, what Sarah was saying, it's easy for us to miss that. If you're just getting a bunch of topics and all that, it's hard to see the beautiful tapestry. The story is Christ, really. Long story short, I mean, it's Christ in his redeeming work for sinful humanity. But, but having said that, there's even, you know, subordinate levels of biblical theology, uh, deep, rich themes like the theme of blood sacrifice, you know, atonement, the themes of, of redemption and, and other things that are flowing through the Bible so powerfully. I think if you have a pastor who's attuned to biblical theology, uh, he's going to be bringing those themes out and connecting them to the passage he's preaching on. And you can just see the whole thing as a tributary of truth just flowing from the throne of God. God is really beautiful. And after a while, you're not wondering what the book of Leviticus has to say to you anymore. You're not struggling over Ruth or over, you know, the minor prophets and think, what does this have to do with my life? After a while, you just start to see the whole thing in a majestic and a beautiful way. Biblical theology that integrates and unifies the whole message of the Bible. Biblical understanding of the gospel. 
We need to understand what the gospel really is. You know, and that is so important. For a healthy church, you need to understand the gospel. And what is the gospel? Well, the the gospel is the story of how a holy God redeemed a sinful and wicked people to himself by the sacrifice of his son, the shedding of his blood, and how at the cross, Jesus took on our wickedness onto himself and suffered and died the penalty that we deserve so that he could give us his righteousness. And in that righteousness, simply by faith, in that righteousness, we can stand before a holy God and survive judgment day. I mean, and and other details as well. And Christ was raised from the dead, obviously, on the third day as a picture of our future resurrection. He, the uh, first fruit from the dead. This is the gospel and some other things besides repentance and faith in Christ, the gospel. If you don't understand that properly, you're not a healthy church. And I think there are many Protestant churches that don't have a sharp understanding of the gospel. They're not clear on repentance and faith and how they relate to each other. They're not clear on substitutionary atonement. They're not clear on uh, resurrection and the things that Jesus taught. These are foundational, but even so, there can be some fuzziness. Generally, the fuzziness comes from being, being too man-centered, too human-centered. They try to you know, bridge the gap and all that. And really, we're needing to call people to the gospel, to repent and to believe. But they try to you know, get to where people are at, you know what I'm saying? And they start to rearrange some things. You need a good, solid understanding of the gospel. We need to understand conversion. A healthy church needs to understand conversion. And why is that? Jim, why is it that, the, that a healthy church needs to have a good, solid idea of what it means to be genuinely converted? If the church is fuzzy on conversion, what kind of members will it be admitting? Fuzzy Fuzzy members, right? (laughs) Okay, there we got that figured out. Is that going to have an influence on the life and the health of the church if they're admitting into membership people who aren't actually genuinely born again or, or they don't genuinely know what it means to be born again? That church will not be healthy if it doesn't have a clear understanding of conversion. Bert? Yeah, I think sometimes also specifics of conversion primarily because they're afraid the people that they're bringing into the church and trying to bring into the church don't want to change their sin life mm-hmm. so that they can be converted so they kind of hide it and don't really talk about what you have to do to make it. That's right. Well, let's That's right. go yeah. further sure. beyond birth. There are some churches uh, who don't even want to address sin. That's where it begins. You know, mm-hmm. You've got to address that and, uh, and deal with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of churches don't want to deal with that. They don't. They don't. And, you know, it's really grievous because that is the problem that we're facing. You know, I mean, it is not unloving to tell somebody that sin is the biggest problem in their life and it's dominating and devastating their lives and they need a savior from it. That's not unloving. And frankly, it's not unloving to even tell a converted person, a, a born again person, that that same thing is still true. And all the trouble in your life is caused by sin. Sin is a bitter enemy. It will never be your friend. It's a viper. You shouldn't go to bed with it or hug it or try to make it your friend. It will never be your friend. It's going to always try to destroy you. So we need to understand conversion. We need to understand conversion so that we can actually seek and yearn for it in, in the hearts and the lives of unconverted people. So we're not satisfied with, oh, you know, um, I just felt so good after that service. And And then I came forward and somebody put an arm around me and we prayed together. And I was just its like, well, that's great. That's great. Let's talk a little more about what really happened. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any was in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Has that happened to you? Do you feel that you've been born again by the spirit? 
Is there the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life now? Do you have a hatred for sin and a yearning for Christ? Let's talk about conversion. Those things have to be there for the church to be healthy. Yes, Jack. In the Christian ministry, uh, conversion is, a, is, is really something. I mean, these, uh, you take somebody like uh, received Christ, prayed for Christ to come into his heart 20 years ago, and, and they give a real, a real testimony about where he was, when he was, how he came out of salvation, and so forth and all. And that person over a period of time, in other words, is really converted and is, is not the same person that went in there 20 years ago or 25 years ago. Right. Or whatever. Well, there's, there's uh, people like that really, uh, really need help. They, they, I mean, you know, when, when they get out, uh, if they get out, when they get out, mm -hmm. so forth and all, uh, it's uh, people have to really, really realize and understand they're not the same people. We baptized them. Young man, uh, the other day that was committed for a very serious crime, but he's not the same person that he was when, when he went in. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. God has transforming power. He can release a sinner from their sin in every way. Jesus came to save us from our sins. And what that means is uh, not just for Jimmy, but for any of us who have been genuinely converted, that uh, He intends an entire and complete salvation from sin. And he's not going to stop. He's not going to rest until we are entirely delivered from it. Isn't that a marvelous thing? I'm excited about that. Um, and so we have to have this solid idea of conversion. The next step is a, a biblical understanding of evangelism. That is essential to healthy church life. A church that does not embrace biblical evangelism cannot be a healthy church. Can't be. We can have right doctrine. We can have good, good Bible lessons. We can do all kinds of stuff. But if we're not actively involved in evangelism. We're not a healthy church. But there are a lot of churches that have a lot of activity around evangelism and they're not healthy either because they don't have a healthy or biblical understanding of what evangelism is. You know, some of those soul winning churches, etc. you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with soul winning. I think that's great. It's just another expression for evangelism if done properly. But you know what I mean? Where there's a kind of a notch on the gun belt kind of thing. You're trying to increase your numbers. At that point, you may start lowering the standards on who's generally converted or whatever, and they're trying to do, you know, like we were talking about that book by C.S. Lovett, um, who uh, was talking about techniques in soul winning. And he's got his hand on the guy's shoulder, and he said a little gentle downward pressure will, will kind of force him down, and you say in a commanding voice, now pray after me. I'm saying, look, that's not evangelism. It's a technique. That's a sales technique. That's not evangelism. We need to genuinely understand what evangelism is. So there's so many ways we can become unhealthy in this issue of evangelism. Most churches become unhealthy by just not doing it anymore because it's hard to do. What is evangelism? What is evangelism? Anybody want to answer that question? What is evangelism? Well, I have an idea. Evangelism, okay. you, you go and witness people and try to get them to become a Christian. Okay. There you go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's that's it. Um, you know, that's one way of saying it. Yes. Dur during the evangelism? That's generally not a good idea. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, evangelism, it's, it's tied to the Greek word uh, meaning good news. And it's, it's, it's sharing the good news. It's Romans chapter 10. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And what is the good news? It's the good news of the gospel that we just talked about, biblical understanding of the gospel. What we believe as an evangelical church is that people get saved by hearing and believing the gospel. And somebody has to proclaim it to them. Somebody has to preach it to them. Somebody has to share with them the gospel. And so for me, 
my burden, my passion is to help equip the saints for reaching people that I could never reach. They're people at your workplace. They're people you meet out in, out in your, the walks of life. I would like you to be strong and healthy and fill with the spirit and well-trained so you make the most of that opportunity. That's where the church growth is really going to take off. Not if the pastor's really evangelistic. That's only part of the equation. Frankly, if the pastor isn't really evangelistic, he's going to have a hard time teaching the people to be evangelistic. I believe that. He's got to be leading people to Christ. He's got to be active in evangelism. But it's not enough. God wants, I think, pastors and teachers and, and the leaders, Ephesians 4, to equip God's people for works of service so the body of Christ can be built up. And how, how do I evangelize personally? Yes, a lot of different ways. Um, you know, for me, um, you know, I, I, I like to uh, witness when I get my hair cut. Um, you know that how they say when, you, when you're like at the, uh, well, that may be a problem for you, it seems like, you know. Maybe not. I think you could have a very memorable encounter. I think they, they certainly would remember you. So, you know. Um, but, I, I mean, there you are. I mean, you're there for a good 20 minutes. You're getting red, brother. Okay. <laughs> You know, you're there for a good 20, 25 minutes. I do find that my haircuts tend to be shorter if I'm dealing with somebody who's not really receptive to the gospel. So if I want a quick haircut, you know, I tend, I tend to say, okay, you're done. Whoosh. You know, it's like, could you take a little more off the top, please? You know, but uh, that's one. On the airplane is good for me. Um, I, had, I had a great opportunity at a supermarket. Um, you know, it's, they're just all over the place. You know, definitely the waiter or waitress. I think if it's slow... And, they, and they're just hanging around talking or socializing. If it's really fast, I don't think that's a good time. You know, I just don't. I, I think it's, it'd be akin to witnessing to somebody on the highway. Hey, roll your window down. Hey, you know, that's just weird. I mean, you know, I think you need to follow. What? Hey, who am I to say? Maybe somebody will get saved that way. I have no idea. Fred. I was going to say, I, had, I did have uh, several occasions where uh, I did witness at a barbershop. That was a good place because a lot of guys were coming in, and this one particular guy uh, was a Muslim, and uh, uh, he was very combative, so yeah. I will have to say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the things you learn, you know, a biblical understanding of evangelism is that it's our job to present the good news winsomely, accurately, compellingly, to bring them to a point where they recognize they must repent and trust Christ, and the rest is up to God. There's nothing more you can do. You're talking about a miracle. They're being born again by the Spirit. That's nothing we can do. Katie. One of the things that I've been learning, too, is that, like, you don't, you don't just evangelize to people that you don't know, mm-hmm. um, to, like, the person that's cutting your hair. You have opportunities around you at all times sure. with all people mm-hmm. that, you know, people are hungry around you. And that's right. They're in need of the message, just like, you know, the people in Africa. So, you know, like, it's not only people that go over to another country that are missionaries. I think that we can all be missionaries in a way. It's a very good point. It's a very good point. As a matter of fact, you know, we've talked a lot about evangelism, and um, I, I've set up a very clear priority structure in my own mind. It starts with my own family, okay? goes from there to workplace. Oh, sorry, not to workplace, to visitors, people who have visited this church, Okay. Because, you know, those are people that God's brought and not all of them are born again. It goes from there to workplace, the people you work with, goes from there to your neighborhood, people you live with, and from there to people you don't know, people you've never met. 
That's the priority structure uh, that I have in my mind for area or local evangelism. Because, yeah, just one, one more thought. Because I think that you're, you're right. The ones you're going to have the most impact on are the ones who know you. And I think it goes kind of in that order, um, et cetera. I think the workplace is probably the, the, one of the greatest places to witness. It's hard, but it's good. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. They're amazed that you would even take the time to tell them that. That's that. right. Then again, I've gone through that. I thought, well, oh, they'd be happy to hear that they tell me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Completely different way out. But I always think about, you know, uh, you know, someone plants, someone sows, someone waters. I just leave it with that, and then. Leave it's it. very. That's a very good point. I do say this though. We should we should scatter seed widely. You know, um, I do think that we should prioritize like that. We should, you know, for me as a as a father, my top priority are my children. You know, now I can't bring them to heaven with me. I've told them that, you know, but I can share the gospel winsomely and I can live the gospel in front of them and I leave the results um, to God. So uh, for me, right on down. But, you know, you bring up an interesting point. You talk about frontier missions. Frankly, you're going to bring about that same structure over on the mission field. Because when you go over there, you're going to start with the families, right? Somebody comes to faith, you're going like to work with the, the husband, the wife, the father, the mother, the brothers, sisters, whatever, going out from there in concentric circles. It's just the same thing. It's got to do with who you know and the people you're interacting with, etc. But God can do anything. I mean, he can, he can have total strangers lead other total strangers to Christ. It can happen. I just think we need an evangelistic stance. And, and to me, that's so intrinsically connected with the, the daily uh, lifestyle of being a Christian. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow him. And that's what it is. It's a cross. It's, it's, it's a burden. And I don't mean that in a negative sense, like, you know, they sniff at it and say, oh, what a burden. That's not it. I'm just saying it isn't easy to maintain an evangelistic stance the rest of your life. Going back to our original context here, though, for this church or any church to be healthy, it must have a biblical understanding of evangelism and a biblical practice of it. It needs to be actually going on. All right. I know it's just this biblical understanding of, but I think they definitely imply that you need to be doing it. I mean, it's not enough to say, oh, yeah, I can, I can take a test. I can, get, I can get 100% on the test on evangelism. Well, the test on evangelism is more than just content. It's, what are you doing? <laughs> How's it going? You know, are you actually witnessing, et cetera? All right, the next one is biblical understanding of church membership. And this is a, a very uh, uh, important one. By that, I mean, you know, just the idea of regenerate church membership, that we would be born again. Um, and, and that's it. I, you know, we, we make a big effort of this. This is a Baptist church ideal, um, but I think it should be for any church, et cetera, biblical understanding of membership. Uh, biblical church discipline. Luke, I think we, we ran out of the, that one, so we're going to get to that one next week. Is that, is that 45 on the top? I'm sorry about that. Maybe you can sit next to somebody and share or whatever. I'm sorry. I, this, this is the same content that we had last week, so I thought maybe some people would bring some from last week, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I'm on page three. Okay, biblical understanding of uh, church discipline. Why is this important, by the way, for a healthy church? Why does a healthy church need to be practicing church discipline? Okay, right. That's right. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In that context, what is leaven? Yes. I just love, I mean, there's just so many special moments. Yes. That would be called a synonym. So, yes, that's right. Leaven equals yeast. All right. What is the metaphor? Okay, let's get to the reality, okay? It's it's sin. It's wickedness. It's evil. And what does it mean when it says a little of it leavens the whole lump? It just starts to permeate. It just spreads. 
That's right. And, and basically, it's disease, isn't it? Talk about a, a body metaphor. You're talking about disease. Well, if you're going to have disease spreading through the body, that is not equal to health, okay? So you've got to have church discipline going on for there to be health in the body. I have a, a holistic kind of view of church discipline. It's not just voting someone out. That's the ultimate stage, but I think there should be all kinds of stuff going on long before then. And the essence of it are, are, is whatever, godly, mature people who care about each other and are in connection with each other, who know each other in community, and then care enough to say, hey, brother or sister, this is, this is not good. Can I help you with that? Or we need to hold each other accountable. Let me pray for you. Before stuff even gets to the point where somebody gets voted out or whatever. To me, I just like to stop it cold. You know, I'd like to nip it in the bud, etc. You know, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. The salt is a preservative. It's a desiccant. It prevents bacteria from spreading from one part of the meat to the next. We need to be that for each other. Just like, hey, let's, let's not do that anymore. That's not good. Stop that. Before it even gets to a point where it can really infect the whole, the whole um, all the meat or whatever. So church discipline. Number eight, promotion of Christian discipleship and growth. A pervasive concern with church growth exists today, not simply with growing numbers, but growing members. Uh, Though many Christians measure other things, the only uh, certain observable sign of growth is a life of increasing holiness rooted in Christian self-denial. These concepts are nearly extinct in the modern church. Recovering true discipleship for today would build the church and promote a clearer witness to the world. You know, that's that's straight from the Bible, but it's also straight from Jonathan Edwards. The clearest mark of personal regeneration is a life of personal holiness. That's what he would say. You want to know, am I born again? Simply ask, are you holy? Are you hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Are you paying the price for that hunger and thirst by actually fighting sin and putting it to death? That is not, are you sinless and perfect? Like a Wesleyan Methodist might say, is there sinless perfection going on in your life? We're not talking about that. Is the battle going on? And that's what we're talking about. Is there a warfare going on? Are you putting on your spiritual armor? Are you going out every day and fighting? Personal holiness. Well, so therefore, a healthy church is growing that in people. You're in, a, you're in an atmosphere, a climate where you are challenged to make steps, faith steps of growth in your life. You're more like Christ now than you were five years ago because you're involved in that church. That's a healthy church. Genuine discipleship and growth. And then ninth, a biblical understanding of leadership. This is polity or government, etc., um, you know, uh, basically looking at what the church says about how it should be set up for leadership. Um, there's different, lots of different approaches to this. There's a lot of different theories. You know, there's elders and deacons clearly set up in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, how those, who they are, what they are, et cetera, is very interesting. And that's something we're looking at. Uh, there are a number of people uh, that would like to see us move to what we call a plurality of elders. Um, and I think there's some biblical warrant for that. So we're looking at that. And frankly, I skipped the soteriology section in Grudem and went to the church section to help begin teaching uh, so that over the next year, 06, 07, when we start to move forward and there's some initiatives that 23 of you at least will have some, you know, you, you need to permeate, okay? Leaven could be a good thing, you know, a little leaven. Leaven's the whole lot. It's like, hey, read Grudem on the church. It's really good theology and all that. And you start to learn about the church. One of the aspects of a healthy church is that it's led properly. It's led biblically, etc. Okay? So those are nine marks of a healthy church. Then he gives a statement here, um, which, uh, you know, I understand why he made it. Uh, In identifying and promoting these nine marks, we are not intending to lay down an exhaustive and authoritative list. Okay? There are other significant marks of healthy churches like prayer and fellowship. 
Uh, we want to pursue those ourselves as well, and we want you to pursue them with us. But these nine are the ones we think are most neglected in local churches today with the most damaging ramifications. Okay, any questions on these nine marks of a healthy church? Andy? Yes. Uh, doesn't there ever have a little booklet yeah. available on that? Yes, you can get it. You can just go to Nine Marks Ministries, www.ninemarks.org, I think it is, or just Google Nine Marks, and uh, you can order them. You can get them. You know, really inexpensively, too. He's got a whole book on him, 200-page book, but he's also got a booklet, which has longer descriptions of these things. Okay? All right, nine marks of a healthy church. All right, the purposes of the church. Uh, let's look at some purposes of the church in the five minutes or so we have, have left, and then um, I think we'll, we'll be done. All right, ministry to God, ministry to believers, and ministry to the world. That's how he organizes it. That's what we're to be, to be doing. Um, so those three things, and then the need to keep them in balance. Ministry to God is worship. One of the purposes of the church is to worship Almighty God. Okay? Now, let's not misunderstand. Let's not think God needs worship, was running short with the angels, and then called us to kind of help fill the gap. You know, it's like a family that's running short in their budget, and somebody goes out to moonlight and takes an extra job. All right? God is not short of worship. He doesn't need worship. Frankly, God doesn't need anything. There's no lack in God. But we were created to worship. We are redeemed to worship. That's where we're heading. We're going to spend eternity doing it. And therefore, a good, solid church, a healthy church, a church function is to worship and glorify Almighty God. So we need to be worshiping. And the worship, friends, isn't just 11 to 12, 20 on Sunday morning and afternoon. It's not, that's not it. Um, it's, it should be going on all the time. We should be honoring and praising and worshiping God all the time. Whenever you just stop and something hits you, the Spirit moves inside you, and you just say, thank you, God, I praise you for that, whatever. You're worshiping God. By the power of the Spirit, you're worshiping. And so we need to be a worshiping community. We need to praise God now. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with gratitude in your hearts to God. That's just singing, praising God. You know, I think that's a beautiful thing. We need to be praising Him now and honoring Him. We need to also, and we will be praising God eternally. Ephesians 1.12 says, in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. So we're going to be praising His glory and, and worshiping forever and ever. That's what the church does. So we worship and we praise. Secondly, we have ministry to believers, and Grudem calls that nurture. What do you do to a believer? You don't need to evangelize them, right? They're already believers, right? But what do you do? You build them up in the faith. You help them to, uh, to reach maturity in Christ. You do that nurturing, the discipling we we're talking about, help them to grow. The church has an obligation to nurture and develop those already in the faith, building them up to full maturity in Christ. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 says, we proclaim Christ warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he so powerfully works within me. Wow, look at that. That tells, we, tells me what we should do for each other. We should proclaim Christ to one another. Well, what does that mean? Are we all supposed to be preachers? Well, that's not what I'm getting at. I think the idea is let's speak Christ to each other. You, know, you never get to the point where it's like, well, I know Christ, that's baby stuff when I was just a new Christian. I don't need Jesus anymore. Who would ever say that? I am the vine and you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We need Christ all the time. And so we proclaim Christ. And what else does it say? 
warning and teaching everyone. What do you think warning means? What does that mean? Yeah, it's don't sin. Okay, good. There's just like you mentioned before, as far as uh, 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 discipline right. is concerned. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a form of discipline. Because we have a deadly enemy still. The Remember? Say again? The big people are already and yet they need to be warned. You know, this is, this is the whole thing. The, the Greek verb here is nuthateo, from which we get nuthetic counseling, etc. It's the same word. It's that admonishing, that warning, that dealing ser- seriously with something. Say, brother, sister. No, I mean, that's not right. You need to not do that. Help each other. You do it with gentleness. You do it with humility because we need it done too and we want to do it the way we want it done. Jesus uh, said it's like taking something out of somebody's eye. Okay? How do you want somebody coming at your eye? Okay? Gently, if at all, right? <laughs> but I mean, if you can't get that thing out, you want somebody to come get it, but they've got to come at it gently, right? And so, you know. Yeah. Think about sin before they actually do it. So if you have a situation where you have friendships and relationships, right. people talk about what they plan to do and, and that sort of thing. Right. That's right. So we're going to nurture each other. We're going to help each other. We're going to try to do everything we can to present everyone perfect in Christ. That's what he's getting at. Our spiritual gifts are given to help accomplish this, in part to help accomplish this task. It was he who gave some to the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. That's nurture. And so spiritual gifts are given to build the body up as each part does its work. So that's ministry to each other. Then there's ministry to the world, evangelism and mercy. Two things. To the non-Christian, they need the gospel. To the poor, they need material things. And the church is called on to do both. The Great Commission clearly establishes the church's ongoing responsibility to take the gospel to the ends of the earth until the end of time. So also the church's responsibility to the poor and needy is taught, although the first priority is to care for the needy in the church. So we are to be giving uh, to the poor. Uh, look at Luke 6, 35 and 36 on page 5. It says, But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Then Luke 14, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Mark 14, 7, the poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, right? There's ongoing need and ministry to the poor, all right? But there's a priority on the gospel. Clearest indication of this is in John chapter 6. Jesus fed the 5,000. They're there the next day. They said, Master, when did you get here? Jesus, as usual, cuts right to the point. Forget all that. I tell you the truth. You're looking for me not because you saw a miraculous sign, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. And now what? Guess what? Your stomach's empty again. That's not what I'm here for. Do not labor for the food that spoils, but for the food that lasts to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. You know, he's saying, lift your eyes off your, uh, up above your immediate physical circumstances. So our church needs to have a benevolent ministry to the poor, but we need to saturate it with the gospel because that's their greatest need. In the end, the way that God has provided for the ongoing needs of the poor 
is the healthy bodies and, and, and good minds of the poor themselves. The church cannot possibly take on the rent and heat and clothing and food and all that for all the poor there are in the vicinity. It's impossible. It just is flat out impossible. Rather, what we need to do is free them up from the things that are not enabling them to provide for themselves with God's help. And that's sin, usually. So we share the gospel as we give tokens of God's love and, and consideration for them, etc. We could, I mean, we don't, somebody comes and say, I can't make my rent. It's tough because here's the thing. We pay them this month and you got next month, et cetera. You got issues. But still, there's a church's ministry to the poor and we've got to keep these things in balance. Can't say, okay, we're going to be the worshiping church and forget the other two. Or we're going to be the discipling church. We're going to teach the word, but we're not, we're going to neglect worship or we're not going to do much ministry to the outside world. They've all three got to be in balance. Okay. See what else there is in the sheet. I think we're pretty much done. Yep. We're done. Any uh, questions about the things that we talked about tonight? What's that? I am I am paid as a minister of the gospel here, but I do this for free. I did it when I was when I was not a pastor. I love teaching the word. This is my this is my calling. Those two things are apples and oranges. But good question as always. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we have spent tonight. I thank you for um, the goodness of God uh, that is displayed so plainly and clearly in the gospel. We thank you for Jesus, Lord. We rely on Him and we depend on Him at every moment for our lives. I thank you for the things that we've learned about the church tonight. I pray that this church would be ever increasingly healthy. God, make us a healthy church. Lord, where there's sickness and weakness in this church, oh Lord, heal it. Uh, Make us strong in evangelism. Lord, make us faithful to disciple each other and build each other up. Lord, make us a, a hot and passionate worshiping church where we really have a full experience of worship and we pour out our hearts in love to you. God, make us a healthy church. Thank you for this time tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.